The government publishing office and arm of Congress has issued its vision for a hybrid workforce. About a third of its workforce is still out on full-time telework or remote work. GPO is also offering 100% telework for white-collar employees in the D.C. area unless they're needed in the office on a specific day. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with GPO's Chief of Workforce Development, Education and Training, Stuart Lane. First, though, you'll hear from GPO's Chief Human Capital Officer, Dan Melke. So the agency has about what we call a 50-50 workforce. So 50% of the folks are highly skilled trades folks and other blue-collar positions. And then the rest is administrative and you know professional positions, white-collar, as they would call it. So it's a very interesting dynamic to have. So the folks that have to come in every day and some of the teleworkers have to come in a couple times a week or once a week or once every two weeks, but it's an interesting dynamic between the workforce. And so what we had to do over this period was really build the confidence in the folks that have to come in every day that the folks that are teleworking can do their jobs and do them well and provide that same level of support to them that we were providing when we were in the building. And we've been able to do that. And a lot of folks say, well, tell us how telework increased productivity. My response is, well, it didn't hurt it. We're doing the same things that we had to do and the same level of support that we did when we were actually going into work each and every day. And to me, that's really the bar that you have to meet first. Now, in addition to that, we have done some things better and we have seen an increase in productivity as well. But it was a a unique dynamic to build the trust with the folks that have to come in every day that we can do our jobs. Stuart, I'll move on over to you for the training aspect of things. What were some unique considerations with the GPO moving some employees to, you know, 100% telework or 100% remote work? Our standard business model before COVID hit was that we were trying to get employees into the classroom. Just about all the standard classes that we offered at GPO were all related to getting employees into the classroom. And then when COVID hit, when a large majority of the workforce or a large portion of the workforce started teleworking full-time, we realized we really have to change what we're doing. Our business model needs to change. We still have an important job to do providing training to the employees at GPO. We, we just really had to change our method and our delivery. We had to go from in the classroom training to virtual classroom training. So we offered live virtual classroom training. We offered web-based training. We started increasing the amount of curriculum that we offer, you know, with online training so that we could, for example, communicating a brand new policy to everybody in the agency that needs to know about it. We really needed to kind of change up the way we did business in the training world. So things changed for us a lot when COVID hit. You had outlined how there's a bit of a blue-collar, white-collar split within the GPO workforce. I know that's a supervisor-by-supervisor supervisor conversation who uh, gets to telework fully, but what goes into that determination? To kind of give you a little history, we didn't do a lot of telework before the pandemic, and we didn't really have the systems in place to kind of support doing our work from a telework position. The pandemic changed all that, and we quickly build up our systems so we can do a lot of things that you probably could have done before the pandemic telework, but we just didn't design the work that way for the workforce. So really, we actually was able to take a step further because we're legislative branch, not executive branch. 
in that we actually offer 100% telework in the locality area. So if you live in, in the DC area and you're getting DC locality pay and you get 100% telework, you still don't have to come in. So, you know, we have remote work where folks live outside the locality area. And if they have to travel to their central office, we would pay for that travel. Then we have 100% telework where they can telework unless they need it. They're needed on a specific day to come into the office. And then we have the kind of hybrid where you have to come in a couple days a week or maybe one day a week, and then you telework the other days. So each supervisor was allowed to look at that. The jobs that have to come in every day, they actually had to come in during the pandemic because we were essential. So we actually had a really good idea of what folks need to come in each and every day to work and what folks can telework. And making that transition to telework really gave us an idea of how we can do telework even better. So right now it's up to the individual supervisors, but I can speak for the human capital at the GPO in that, you know, I realized we've done our jobs. We've been able to stand up the systems to do things remotely and do our jobs as well remotely as we do in the building. You know, so it just, for me, it was like, well, I, the folks don't really have to come back as long as they're willing to continue to the support level that we have. We just don't need to come back to the office to provide that. Now, the general rule for human capital is if a customer wants to meet you face to face, because for example, when an individual retires, it's very personal. It's a big step in their life. And sometimes they want to see that benefit specialist face to face to go over the paperwork. We'll come in and we'll meet with that customer that day. And that's kind of the general rule. There are folks that need someone in the office every day. So they'll do, you know, you come in on Monday, the next person comes in on Tuesday and they'll make sure they have that office coverage. But it's really supervisor to supervisor and business unit to business unit. And we've had really good success. In most cases, the business units have looked across and said, well, we've been able to do this for two years, really successful teleworking. So we're going to keep doing that. To look at this another way in terms of the systems that GPO has been standing up here, I understand that automation is part of improving GPO's human capital functions. Can you just give me a better understanding of what is being automated here and how it's improving the function of human capital? We've actually started on the automating everything about five years ago. We're a small agency. It's rather hard for us to afford the nice, really big, robust systems. So what we started looking for was solutions. Now we do some in-house, you know, we have a coder that's on contract and uh, we have folks in human capital that develop the requirements and we develop our code and we have that part of our human capital systems. And then we went out and we looked for solutions that would take a long time for us to do that. That was in a price range that we can afford that could meet our reporting requirements and compliance requirements as well. And uh, we went from basically only having one thing automated, which was our performance management, to automating everything. I think we still have awards to do. We still want to put in our telework agreements and an online system. And then our big one's going to be workforce management, which workforce management's going to kind of tie all these different systems together to talk to each other, to create that big picture of where our workforce is at, where our skill gaps are at where are different areas that we need to conduct training to ensure our workforce is prepared for the future and then kind of manage that overall. And just to follow on to that for a little bit longer here, I understand that 
transparency in these systems has been something that has been a big priority for GPO. Are you able to go into that in a little more detail? Stuart, we'll start with you. We're just kind of in a new world. When we were all in the building before, and the way government ran previously was uh, face-to-face interactions and meeting in person and paperwork. You know, we're in a self-service world. Our customers, just like customers uh, purchasing things online from Amazon, they, they want to order services online and they want to be notified where things are in a certain process. They want to know where their order is and what their status is. So communications and notifications and services, uh, ordering services, making all that modernized uh, and digital these days is as critical as it's ever been. And Dan, over to you. For me, coming into this job as a chief human capital officer, I wanted to lift that mystery of what human capital is doing, right? And, you know, every action we take in human capital has something to do with an employee. So we felt, I felt that the employee needs to be able to see those actions, that the employee supervisor needs to be able to see the actions. So we've really worked hard to create that level of transparency in each and every one of our systems. So when a personnel action comes in for an employee, they, they know that the personnel action's out there. And it's actually helped us because a lot of times they'll go look at it and they'll come back and say, hey, did you think about this? And they'll help us make sure that that personnel transaction is correct going through the system. You know, we've been really big on communicating with the workforce whenever we do pay adjustments, um, anything to do with uh, their personnel record. We've been really good at making sure everyone knows about different job opportunities available in the agency. And then I'll go ahead and hand it over to Stu about um, the, the, the difference it's made with training. Dan Melke, Chief Human Capital Officer at the Government Publishing Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from Stuart Lane, GPO's Chief of Workforce Development, Education and Training. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations, you founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.